Hello everyone, and thank you for listening to this podcast on the biology behind the Lion King. Now to be honest, I really should have started the podcast by playing the Circle of Life. Or perhaps be prepared, I think that's a better track. Now anyone who knows me knows that the Lion King is one of my favourite films. And it doesn't even have my favourite actor Nicolas Cage in it, but that's perhaps another story. Now on the face of it, you can look at the Lion King movie as a coming-of-age story, if you like, or one about family, redemption, power struggles, for example. But if we take a more clinical approach to things, you'd realise just how much biology is in the film. There is so much biological content, in fact, that I use the Lion King as a basis of much of my own teaching. So what I really want to do in this podcast is focus on some aspects of the film and explain their biological significance. And I'll bring in some ideas from GCSE and A-level content so that students listening will hopefully recognise some familiar concepts. Who knew the Lion King had such hidden depths? So let's start with some basic ecological definitions. Let's start with population. So population is defined as the number of organisms of the same species in a habitat. So in the film we have populations of lions, birds, giraffes, populations of hyenas, elephants and so on, all in the habitat and all belonging to their own group, their own species. Species we define as a group of similar organisms capable of interbreeding, so mating with the same kind, to produce fertile offspring, so kind of children basically, fertile offspring of both genders, reproductively isolated from other groups. This really is the simplest form of classification. So what we're saying here is that the elephants mate with elephants and the lions mate with other lions and so on. If a lion mated with a tiger, we may very well get offspring that we know as the liger. But this is a sterile hybrid, a cross between the two. It can't have children, so we don't class hybrids as species. Let's consider the term community all of the organisms of all species in a habitat. So think of Pride Rock. All of these animals, and plants, let's not forget them, live there. All organisms, and the key bit, of all species. So Pride Rock is the habitat, the place where an organism lives. But within that habitat are microhabitats, smaller parts of the environment that supports a distinct flora and fauna. When Timon shows Simba how to hunt for the witchy grubs, he lifts the log up to find a whole host of creatures to eat. You know, the, the slimy yet satisfying ones. So that log, or more specifically under that log, is a perfect example of a microhabitat with its very own abiotic influences. Now by abiotic I mean the non-living components of an environment, so things like temperature, salinity or salt level, precipitation level for example. When people think of this film, the first thing that usually comes to mind is the soundtrack. And probably Circle of Life. Now, Mufasa talks to Simba about how everything is connected in one big circle of life. I believe the phrase he uses is, When we die, our bodies become the grass, and the antelope eat the grass, and so we're all connected in the great circle of life. What we have here are some really crucial biological concepts about energy transfer and food webs. When we consider how we define energy flow, what we really talk about is the flow of energy through living organisms, including light energy from the sun and chemical energy 
in organisms and its eventual transfer to the environment. Food chains are systems that show these feeding relationships and transfers of energy from one organism to the next, beginning with the producer. So in this specific example, the grass. Each stage is known as a trophic level. So the antelope that eat the grass would be a what we call primary consumer, a herbivore. Next would be a secondary consumer, so one that eats the antelope and so on. So here's the interesting thing. That secondary consumer could be a carnivore if it just eats the antelope. But what if it ate the grass too? It can't biologically, by our kind of standards, be classed as both a primary and a secondary consumer. Especially when we construct the ecological pyramids that people might be familiar with. The pyramids of number, biomass or energy. This is where the idea of food webs come in. Food webs are networks of interconnected food chains within a habitat. In The Lion King, when Mufasa says everything is connected, he truly is right. Food webs show these important interactions. If one organism in the food web is affected, let's just say for the, for the sake of argument it's been poisoned and numbers have dropped. Although I said that, well, in, in today's current climate, it's not such a far-fetched idea. In fact, the UN report that came out not so long ago said humans were solely responsible for the mass extinction endangerment of so many species and such widespread habitat destruction. So I guess talking about removing one organism from a food web is a very real problem. But let's say if we did remove that one organism, think of the consequences that would have. The population of what it would eat would rise as there's less predation. Whatever was eating it may see a decline in numbers as there's now less food available. But that, in turn, would mean more competition for limited resources. It may end up eating more of something else, so the knock-on impact is huge. I want to stick with this idea of competition for a moment. Then I'll come back to the idea of death and how uh, bodies become the grass, that bit. So if you've listened to any of my podcasts about natural selection and evolution, you'll know that I talk quite a bit about competition and out-competing others. Plants compete with each other for light water, space, pollinators, to name just a few. Animals compete for similar things, food, water, shelter, mates, but also hierarchy. Now this, you could argue, is the crux of the whole film. Scar wants to be top dog, well, top lion. It's, it's the resentment that he feels towards his brother that ultimately provides the impetus to turn on him and plot his demise. So when he does eventually take over, you'll notice he doesn't surround himself with new lionesses. He simply takes over control of the existing group. He's asserting his dominance there. Because that competition is within the one species, we refer to it as, but biologically, intraspecific competition. If the lions were competing, I don't know, let's say with the zebra, for example then we call that interspecific competition, as it's between members of different species. Every organism has a niche. Now, that's not just about where an organism lives, but the role it plays in that habitat. If you can compete, or rather out-compete others, 
you're more likely to thrive in your optimal conditions, your what we call fundamental niche. If you can't, you pretty much have to just deal with it, and that's what we refer to as your realised niche. Now, that could be a smaller area to live and populate. Maybe it means you're lower down in the pecking order when it comes to feeding time. I teach about uh, something called Gauss's competitive exclusion principle, and he stated that where populations of two species occupy the same niche, one will normally have an advantage over the other. If conditions remain the same, this will lead to interspecific competition and the removal, the actual removal of one of the species. That's why nothing outcompetes the lions of Pride Rock. They are the top predators. The hyenas make reference to that fact a number of times in the movie. Competition, just as an aside, competition could be the reason for variations in a population. But it's difficult to prove, however, because there are many other factors that influence population size, such as abiotic factors. A causal link has to be established to show that competition is the actual cause of an observed correlation, and that's a difficult thing to do. Also, um, typically there's a time lag in many cases of competition, and perhaps most obvious, data on population sizes are not always that reliable. So as I said, let's go back to the idea of bodies becoming grass. Now, I personally think that whole section of the movie is quite emotive and quite hard-hitting. It's Mufasa's way of telling Simba that these things just happen. To expect it. Almost a forewarning him, you could say. So how does a body become grass? Well, it isn't just by magic. Well, I guess it depends on what you make of this next bit. Organisms will urinate and defecate. And in doing so, they will release nitrogenous waste, bearing in mind that protein is a primary source of nitrogen. DNA, the most fundamental of all biological molecules, you could argue, is made up of nitrogenous bases. So nitrogenous compounds are what's key, and they're also in vitamins that are released. So in a process called deamination, amino acids get broken down into urea, and that's found in urine. And as you guessed it, urea contains nitrogen. You know, it's funny, nitrogen itself is inert. It, it doesn't react with anything. We can't use it. We inhale air with roughly 78% of it, and then all 78% comes right back out. But it's what the nitrogen can be used for when it's in another compound, if you like, that's important. Organisms will also die. So waste material, when I talk about urination, defecation, and remains of animals and plants are all subject to decay. Now there's a nice little touch at the end of the movie, well I think it is, a nice little touch at the end of the movie when Simba takes his rightful place as king, when you see the dark, sort of miserable pride land start to transform and a skull washes away from the riverbank. This for me is absolutely symbolic of decay, death and then, then sudden new life that it brings. So this decay is actually brought about by the action of decomposers, bacteria and fungi, or more specifically, saprobionts. These are microorganisms that release extracellular enzymes which break material down, and then they absorb the products of digestion. It would be like, a bit of an odd analogy, but it would be like instead of you eating a piece of cake, you dribbling on it, 
waiting for the saliva almost to act on it and then you eat and digest what's left it's not a very nice image i know but that's how saprobionts work by releasing these extracellular enzymes onto material through something called ammonification of this matter we're able to release ammonium ions into the soil nitrification which is a key process by nitrifying bacteria then occurs so in a series of oxidation reactions that release energy for the bacteria that i've been talking about what we get is the conversion of ammonium ions into nitrites and the bacterium nitrosomonas does that then nitrobacter another type of bacteria is able to convert the nitrite into nitrates and it's these nitrates that the plants can assimilate essentially you have uptake via active transport into their roots the plants use this source of nitrogen to form their plant protein so when bodies die they become the grass isn't technically right but it certainly helps encourage plant growth it is a real circle or cycle of life you could say one of the most fascinating areas in biology to teach is that of relationships that exist between organisms. Symbiosis is any type of a close and long-term biological interaction between two different biological organisms, be it mutualistic, commensalistic or parasitic, and I'll talk about those in a moment. The organisms, each termed a symbiont, may be of the same or a completely different species. In the Lion King, we see a great deal of mutualistic behaviours and interactions. So when I talk about mutualism, we talk about kind of the fact that two things almost rely on one another, benefit one another in that sense. So let's stick with the idea of plants, like the grass taking up nitrogen in the form of nitrates for just a moment. Nitrogen-fixing bacteria exist and they can be free-living, so just in the soil, or mutualistic where they form these little root nodules on the uh, on the roots of leguminous plants so things like peas and clover they take in nitrogen gas from the air and they fix it or convert it basically into other nitrogen containing compounds such as ammonia which in turn are then used to make amino acids which we use to make proteins now this is a really great example of a mutualistic relationship as both organisms are benefiting and that's the key with a mutual relationship it's not like parasitism uh, where one feeds off another host and does it damage or commensalism where one organism uses another for its own gain but it doesn't really harm or help that organism in the process no here both benefit the nitrogen fixing bacteria live in the plant essentially they've got glucose on tap they need glucose to respire to stay alive what better way to get it than to live in a plant that makes it constantly during photosynthesis and as for the plant well those bacteria will help provide a source of nitrogenous material for them here's another example a little closer to home digestive bacteria and humans human beings have what are often called good bacteria in their digestive system this good bacteria exists exists rather in order to help the human to digest food quite simply some foods cannot be digested entirely so when these foods are consumed 
the bacteria in the digestive system feed on them. The bacteria stay alive, the human gets help with the process of digestion, everyone's a winner. So where do we see this kind of thing in the Lion King? Well, between Scar and the hyenas, two totally different species, each with their own wants and needs, but both are willing to work together to thrive. Scar wants to use the hyenas to take over Pride Rock, to kill Mufasa and remove Simba as the future king. Just watch the part of the film when the song Be Prepared begins. Aside from being a brilliant song, you really get a sense of dependency that Scar has on the hyenas, even though he's the one atop of the big rock in the movie running the show. So what do the hyenas get out of this deal? Food. Scar says, in fact I think the line is, stick with me and you'll never go hungry again. A promise of unlimited food supplies is sufficient for them to follow his orders. And I've already said, food is a key resource in high demand, driving competition. When Sarabi, Simba's mother, tries to convince Scar of the scarcity of the food later in the movie, she encourages him to relocate. Again, this is biologically accurate. Students sometimes think that when food goes, everything just dies. That's not the case. Organisms will often need to migrate and move on. Take eutrophication, for example. Once rooted plants die as a result of an algal bloom, aerobic bacteria will thrive and they'll deplete oxygen levels of water. Now, as you'd expect, this means that fish and other aquatic organisms will die. But more likely, they will need to migrate. Another great example in the film of mutualism is just simply the relationship of Timon and Pumbaa. Would you ever see a meerkat and a warthog befriending one another in real life? Perhaps not. But in The Lion King, both have this kind of symbiotic relationship. They need each other. Not to take over any land, but for emotional support. Companionship. That's the exact same idea. The fact that Timon cries when Nala is apparently coaxing Simba away from their little trio is indicative of this relationship. But then the Simba-Nala relationship is another one I'd like to explore. As a viewer, we know from the get-go that Simba and Nala will end up together. We see it play out in the film, really from the beginning, but what we're seeing in the movie are true courtship behaviours. Now, I don't want to repeat the entire podcast that I've done on courtship and the biology behind flirting, which, if you are interested, is available now to listen to uh, as a podcast. But there are some key aspects I'd like to touch upon. Members of the same species with similar genes, i.e. Simba and Nala, resemble each other physically and biochemically. Now, this helps them to distinguish members of their own species. The ability to display a behaviour is also genetically determined, and so individuals can also recognise members of their own species by the way they act. Behaviours evolve, and they influence the chance of species survival. Courtship and mating are critical to this. Now, I know in the film you see Nala pin Simba down to the floor, but what's crucial is the fact that it's a recognised behaviour in the same species. Yes, I'm probably reading more into that scene than others would, but the biology, if you look for it, the biology is there. Simba and Nala 
ultimately will form a pair bond. Now in biology, a pair bond is a strong affinity that develops in some species between a mating pair consisting of a male and a female, leading to the production and the rearing of offspring and potentially this lifelong bond. The film very strongly hints that this is the case. Even Zazu the bird makes a joke about how the two clubs are destined to be together or I think it's betrothed to use his word. Given that I spent a big portion of this podcast focus on death and decay, perhaps ending on a note about love is a slightly better way to wrap up. So the next time you sit down and watch The Lion King, just look a little deeper. Or as Rafiki says before the spirit of Mufasa appears, look harder. There's lots of biology out there to see. You never know, I might make my way through all the Disney movies and give them a little biological spin. But on that note, I'd like to thank you all for listening.